standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. This week I am chatting to author Priya Basil about her new book, Be My Guest, which is about, as the name would suggest, it's kind of about hospitality really, but hospitality in many, many different forms. So, you know, the old classic, it's Christmas, gotta either endure being at my parents' house or endure them being at mine and we've all just got to rub along and deal with each other's cooking and oh god I don't even want to think about it that kind of hospitality but also from a more kind of philosophical perspective in terms of who has what resources and who gets to decide and and why they get to decide and we recorded this before the general election but it's actually sort of ended up being a little bit more pertinent in light of last week's results so it's an interesting chat and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I enjoyed chatting to her if you are one of those maniacs who finishes their Christmas shopping on the Sunday before Christmas and and the days that follow A, I'm getting stressed just thinking about it but B... If you are one of those people, Priya's book is in the shops now and it's a really like beautiful looking object and a fascinating read so make a great stocking fillet. If you happen to be stocking up, oh dear, if you are then godspeed but uh, enjoy this on the way to the shops first. I am sitting in a boulangerie. I like to say it in the most Essex way possible to represent, you know, in Finsbury Park with Priya Basil, author of the new book, Be My Guest. Priya, hi. Hi. So you've been here for a few days sort of doing the rounds with the press and stuff around the book. So how's that been going for you? It's been a really lovely experience because it feels like a, a welcome back into the English language because it's been so long since I published a book in English or published anything in English. And it also feels like a real welcome into people's lives because all the conversations I've had have just opened up really interesting sort of angles into how people are with each other right now. So, for instance, I was talking to a group of people and they were saying how they have the feeling that people host less, that they're invited to less dinner parties and that they, that they themselves invite people over less frequently than they recall. Mm. And I thought that was so interesting as a kind of development and something that I hadn't noticed, I guess partly because I'm not actually present in London and when I come over, it's very much about meeting people, so... And in my family, we tend to organize a lot of get-togethers anyway. Mm. But it was interesting to discover that this may be a trend, that people Mm. are actually getting together less around the table in each other's homes. That's obviously a very integral theme to your book, being my guest. Can you tell us a little bit about it? This is a really astonishing book for me because it wasn't a book that I planned to write. It came out of a request from a German editor to write something about food. And she said maybe with a political angle. And I started to think about it and I wasn't really sure how I might pull this off. And then the more I thought about the notion of hospitality, the more I started to get excited about what a huge field it opened up. There were so many things I could explore under that umbrella. And then as I started writing and went on writing, I had this feeling that actually this is the book I was meant to write. And that is just such a strange sensation to six months before to have no no sense that, you know, this is the direction I'd be going in. And then to suddenly feel as though, but of course this is exactly what I'm meant to be writing. 
And I guess in a way, because my life has always been this movement between different pe- people and places and cultures, born in the UK, Indian family roots, growing up in Kenya, moving to Berlin, it allowed me to kind of uh, think about all of that in the context of the larger currents that are defining our lives today and also to think about it from a philosophical point of view the history of hospitality what that has meant Um, and I also had a lot of fun with it I mean I I allowed myself to write very freely and associatively and to put things together that you maybe wouldn't expect to find together so one minute I'm talking about the old Rolo ad who would you share your last Rolo with and then we kind of jump to um, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida and his thoughts on unconditional hospitality. And I really loved that possibility to play and to change registers. And it was it was a fun book to write in that respect. Mm. It does cover quite a lot of ground in for such as because it's really it's sort of an essay. So I want to start with the sort of philosophical aspect of it, which I thought was really interesting. Right in the opening, you say that we're all guests, really, and hopefully if we sort of develop into, and not even necessarily in a parental role, but if we kind of develop into functioning adults, we will become hosts. I've never really thought about it that way, but it's an interesting point. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think that, for me, also, that idea that there's a kind of transition that we make and that the conscious decision to kind of take more responsibility, to, to give more... It became present to me. It became more obvious to me after moving to Germany. I mean, of course, as we grow up and we leave home and we take more responsibility for ourselves, we have the sense of maturing and growing up. And within the family circle, perhaps, we start to do things for others that were done for us. But what really interested me was the fact of how this can take on a different political dimension so that you give in another way back to society through political engagement to grassroots initiatives with other people. And living in Germany, I, I moved there um, around 18 years ago and um, I didn't speak the language. I didn't know anybody except the, the man I loved and who was the reason why I moved. And I started writing, but I still wasn't established as a writer but the possibility to join with other people and to be part of an initiative and the first one that I was really part of was in 2013 when Snowden Revelations came out and I was one of seven writers who started this Writers Against Mass Surveillance Appeal and we worked for months to write this appeal to gather signatures and then we published it in 30 countries at the same time and it was a really an amazing experience to sort of collaborate with people you don't know for something that you care about and to feel the kind of sense of connection and bonding and belonging that comes out of that and the the sense of contributing something without knowing what difference it will make but feeling as though it mattered simply to, to give in that way, to give the time and the thought to raising more awareness about this issue of how we're being surveilled at so many levels. So I think that dimension of political engagement really influenced this idea of moving from being a guest to a host and the question of how much can we take on, like in what other domains can we give and what might that then open up for us mm. because the, the possibility for discovery and new connections and, um, I mean, discomfort also. It's not always in a pleasant role to be in, mm. but I think it can be a tremendously rewarding one. Yeah, it's interesting when you sort of think about it, there's so many different ways to be a host. So you talk about, for example, your family and sort of time spent with your mother and mm. things like that and how that's sort of 
that kind of hospitality is a real sort of display of love. And, and but yeah, I think a lot of us sort of have that with our with our family. Do you think it is sort of like the ultimate act of generosity to host someone? Mm. I think it can be. I mean, what's so interesting in in the family constellation is the the way that as our parents get older, we are also required to look after them, and the that dynamic the dynamic shifts. Shift. Yeah. And that is, is, is not an easy shift for most of us, I think. Mm. And I write about that with my mother and how things that, I, that she did for me so easily, dishes that she cooked for me, for instance, they cost her more because, you know, she's older and it just requires an effort that she doesn't always, she's not always up to. And it's very hard to accept that, maybe, that things that you have always taken for granted, that have given you your sense of being anchored in the world and secure in the world, are no longer as reliable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, also, the acceptance of that and the willingness to step up to giving more in order to keep that relationship, in order to keep the equilibrium, is a tremendous act of generosity. And I guess the, the, the ultimate test is how far we're prepared to go with opening the door to, to people we don't know. Because I think like within the family, we're quite used to practicing giving and, and you know, the very deep bonds sort of almost demand that for us, even if sometimes it's to our detriment. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, how open are we to uh, sharing our world, our wealth, our... Uh, opportunities with people who we don't know how, how might we give back in a way that sort of makes the world a more fair and equal place that's a question that really I think I, I ponder a lot in the book and because it's a question that is very present in my life and I guess I'm also still trying to figure out what what are the boundaries how far could I step and um, I feel as though in a way writing a book called Be My Guest it's a bit like sometimes I feel as I think, oh my goodness, you know, I've written a kind of open invitation to to the world. Like anybody can ask me to come and sit at my table because this book is really very much about being open to the possibility of anyone sharing mm. your space, which is a hugely challenging idea. I mean, it's actually terrifying in a way, and yet I think it can also be an incredibly galvanizing and um, inspiring idea because the encounter with somebody you don't know can be really beautiful and I experienced that when I was in Germany in 2016 and many refugees arrived in Europe and um, Angela Merkel was one of the few leaders um, who said Germany's borders will stay open to these people and it was an amazing moment to see all these citizens basically come forward and welcome these refugees and say we're ready to shape the future together we're ready to work with you and help you and then as far as possible try on an equal footing to find um, a way forward and many of the initiatives that were started up in that period had to do with food with meeting around the table and I was at a few of these um, these gatherings and it was incredible to see how even though there was little in common in terms of language or knowledge of each other's backgrounds and pasts uh, being around a table, enjoying something together, was a, a moment of confirming the fact that uh, we're open to seeing how we could live together and acknowledging each other as having a right to be there. 
and having something to give to each other because the refugees then often cooked as well. So this whole kind of who's the guest and who's the host was a bit blurred. That, for me, was an instance in which I sort of realised that actually there's probably a lot more that we are capable of than we think. When you're saying, oh, be my guest, you know, and you say that's, that's sort of terrifying because you're basically saying, well, anyone can sort of share your space. But the hospitality you're talking about is obviously th- there's different kinds of it. And one of the other things you sort of pick up on, which I found interesting because I've spoken to a couple of other writers at the moment who've recently sort of written about this kind of thing. I've just spoken to Lem Sisse and Gemma Neville, who've both written books recently and have sort of spoken to me about listening as an act of hospitality, and that kind of plays into that. Is that the kind of hospitality you're exploring as well? Are there other kinds of maybe less obvious acts of hospitality that we can sort of offer to other people? Yeah, that's that's a really important insight, and I think this, that, that to listen is to offer a kind of shelter. Mm. And I think particularly at the moment when we think about how shrill our political discourse is and how... You know, people are almost shouting at one another. I think the the possibility of listening uh, could be a very healing um, possibility. It's not easy at all, of course, because we all want to persuade each other and change minds. And actually, to 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 step back and to think, maybe a way towards finding common ground is just to listen and to see what might come out of the listening. It feels like a sort of radical. A approach to take right now mm. and uh, I, do, I, I do think that hospitality takes many different forms and that cooking and eating around the table is just one aspect of it and so uh, I, I guess in the book I also explore the different political dimensions of hospitality and what kind of politics, what, what makes for a hospitable politics and I think that's a question that's particularly present here right now yeah. in the UK as we consider our relationship to the EU and as we consider what kind of society we want to be, what kind of government we want to have. Questions like the NHS, this is about hospitality too, like what is available to us in terms of the care of the state for the citizens, even if we pay for it, that it's free at the point of use and that it's there for everybody regardless. That is also a kind of unconditional hospitality that think helps to help the society to cohere and to feel that you know they matter and that they are worthwhile so these very different aspects I think are really important and I guess one of the ideas in the book that was very influential for me is the idea of unconditional hospitality as um, described by the French philosopher Jacques Derrida and he acknowledges that unconditional hospitality is impossible And he nevertheless suggests that we try to keep this as a sort of orientation. And my way of thinking about this idea was to to interpret it as an attempt to stay open and to try as far as possible not to decide in advance what the outcome of a conversation or a dinner party or a meeting should be. But, um, yeah, just to to see what happens, to, to, to let each individual encounter take its course. And, and again, I mean, I feel hugely challenged by that. It's not at all an easy thing, but it seems to me that in a time when there's so much a rise in nationalism and xenophobia, a kind of narrowing in the definitions of who belongs and who doesn't, that this other vision of complete openness and readiness 
to welcome anyone, any idea, is a really powerful and necessary one just to, to keep a sort of balance. Because for me, actually, the other side is impossible too. The idea of, that you can continually keep people away or out or ex- excluded, that's also impossible because it's, like, at what cost and what happens to us in the process. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. As you've said already, you've sort of moved around, but you were born in London, you grew up in Kenya, you live in Berlin now, and so you're very much a sort of global citizen. One of the points you pick up on and you sort of touched on there is the sense that some people are more entitled to hospitality than others. And that's sort of the premise of a lot of the political movements that are going on around the world at the moment. So we've got Brexit here, we've got Trump and his wall, and we've got the rise of the AFD in Germany, where, where you are at the moment. Is that part of what sort of inspired this book? And and also, you kind of look at that from a from a different perspective as well. How hospitality, while it can be a massive act of generosity, it can also be sort of wielded as power against people. Mm. This question of who gets to be taken care of, taken seriously, and respected, I think, is is a really decisive one uh, because many people don't feel acknowledged, and I guess because I've had the privilege of always moving fairly easily and without resistance between places, in part thanks to my British passport. And, of course, that passport is also the result of colonialism and um, the British presence in India and then in East Africa. Uh, But nevertheless, my particular experience of that passport has been one of easy access to different places um, around the world. And that was also why I was able to move so easily from London to Berlin. And one thing that it made me think about is, you know, I didn't do anything to deserve this passport more than anyone else, like me personally. Yeah, I mean, you could... Of birth. Yes, yeah. exactly, the, the birthright lottery, mm. so to speak. And so what do you do with unearned privilege? And one of the things that I tried to figure out for myself and which I try to keep in mind is, is to try, as far as possible, not to decide in advance who else can share in those privileges. And so I think that part of hospitality has to be an awareness of what one has and how one got it. I mean, our history, particularly in Great Britain with imperialism, it's a really loaded and difficult history. And and much of what many of the most privileged of us have is, is a consequence of that. So I think we have to handle that really carefully and think about uh, what we might owe other people and what we might do that would acknowledge that and make it possible for others to share in the in the chances and the riches that we have. And uh, in terms of the power element, I mean, that's very interesting because, of course, hospitality can be wielded to seduce and to, yeah, to kind of show the, the wealth, the largesse, the generosity of the host. I mean, in my family, certainly, it's in the form of my grandmother, Mumji, her hospitality, her food has always been a way of proving her own tremendous skill at cooking, but also of insisting on a certain kind of response, a certain kind of love, admiration, respect, which had to come in the form of 
her guests eating more than they wanted and praising her, you know, endlessly. And th- that was always very interesting for me that at her table there was, there was plenty and yet there was also this pressure and she, she made me aware of how powerful food can be. I think it's amazing that for women of her generation who didn't have many other possibilities to really assert themselves, um, she took cooking and she made it her weapon and she has managed to actually really control us in different ways to different degrees because of that. And it's interesting when you come from such a tradition because although you know I now try to be much more reasonable as a host and I kind of think about also the planet and, and how can you be also sustainable when you serve... But there's another part of me that also just thinks hospitality is about excess. It's about giving more than is required. And so at my table, too, there's usually much more than necessary. And nothing pleases me more than when people take second or third helpings. And I also like nothing more than, you know, requests for recipes and general, a general sense of adoration around the table for what I've been able to give to people in a, in a certain moment. I was reading it, I was thinking about how before I was part of Standard Issue, I had an office job and I would always, because I was sort of quite into baking, something that I used to do with my mum, and you sort of mm. touch on this in the book as well, about sort of this, this kind of almost this sort of bonding thing between mothers and daughters. So yeah, and I would always take cake in. I would always make cakes and take them in, because I'd be a bit like, wow. Bribery? You know, what? I mean, <laughs> people will really, like be willing to overlook your inadequacies at um, policy development if you make a decent chocolate brownie so it's true it can cover a lot of Mm. sins and yeah yeah, lead to generally better moods and generosity although the thing with my grandmother was the bond that comes out of the sharing of the recipes was nothing that she allowed herself or my mother so she she didn't give her recipes to anybody and not even to her daughter it was really very much again a case of power of wanting to hold on to these recipes as secrets so that she was the only person in the world. So she is the only person in the world because she's still alive and still cooking where you can get that particular dish, that particular taste. And uh, in a way, of course, it, it has meant that sometimes we know that we just have to go to her table to eat something again. And on the other hand, it's meant that we don't have the possibility to recreate that, to continue her traditions and share them and pass them on. And so... It's sort of, I, I think in the long term, that it's kind of a pity that she's, um, she hasn't been able to do that. Because I think she's lost, lost out as well by not seeing that reproduced and spread um, through the world. Her passion has been taken on by my mother and by me. But the details of her dishes remain a mystery. Hopefully she'll, you know, hopefully she'll eventually... She's like, I, I don't know, she's secretly got a cookbook somewhere that we'll find and, you know... Uh, Eventually, I'm yeah, just we'll amazed that anyone has like their own sort of secret recipe. I'm just like Nigella. I know it's true. I mean, I don't have like my own unique original spin on on literally anything. That's quite sad, isn't it? No, I think it's really beautiful. I think it really reflects this moment where there is. I mean, if you look at food blogs, you know, there's just such a proliferation of possibilities and ideas, and you know, we can just take from them without having to, I don't know, to, 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 to try really hard. Mm. And I think there's something beautiful about that, that it's so accessible, and not just the recipes, but also the ingredients because of the way that, you know, p- 
people have moved and, and we have globalization and the possibility for, for goods to move. And I think that, that, that is a really wonderful thing. Although the kind of, sort of modern cookbook is a very middle class kind of thing now, I think. I mean, you do obviously get, I mean, not, not exclusively, but um, I, me and my friend talked about this a lot about The Guardian. Uh, newspaper obviously and how the Guardian used to be a sort of workers newspaper in Manchester but um, if you get a recipe in the Guardian now it would be like this specific ingredient where is that going to come from that's basically Whole Foods (laughs) and if you can't afford to go to Whole Foods sorry you don't get to make this so one of the things you talk about in the book as well is this concept of eyes bigger than your belly which I thought was really interesting from a sustainability perspective, is that something that you've been thinking about a lot? Yeah, because the, the idea of hospitality to the planet mm. um, is, of course, also part of this bigger picture of uh, how we can be and want to be. And, and there's no question that the way in which we've exploited um, the resources of the planet, the way the intensive farming of food and the rearing, intensive rearing of animals has you know, put tremendous pressures on the planet and we have the climate crisis. And so these questions of how and what we're eating, they, they are also suddenly much more charged. And, and I, I know what you mean also about there's a kind of certain sense in which recipes which have many ingredients and which also require very specialist ingredients can be quite exclusionary. And this question of who gets to partake in this globalized culture is really interesting because on the one hand there's the globalization of tastes and flavors and new recipe books and as you said a sort of moneyed class being able to recreate that and then on the other hand there's a globalization of fast food and homogenized tastes which actually then the poorer and more working class people that that becomes their way of partaking in this in 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 these changes and, and obviously the, the health factors that are implicit in the way you eat. Yeah. So it is very uneven, and there's also there's definitely questions of class here, and food isn't, for all its possibilities, to bring together, to nourish, and to give us possibilities to know one another differently. It also has this darker side of you know people and the planet being exploited to produce things, and then very unnutritious, same-tasting food and chain restaurants that uh, appear everywhere. So these kind of countercurrents, I think, are so interesting that on the one hand, we are able to have very new and unusual things, some of us, and on the other hand, there's a kind of sameness that is being reproduced everywhere. And I wonder also with the questions that are now so present about how we can go on living the way we are, if that will start to change how we can eat. And I don't just mean individual choices, because I know that many people, you know, are thinking about eating sustainable, sustainably reared meat or become vegetarian or vegan. But I wonder if at some point, at a political level, there will have to be decisions which curb the general trajectory that has shaped our food culture in the last couple of decades, this very kind of globalised everything from everywhere approach which has been incredible and at the same time destructive. 
while on the subject of like mass production mm. and globalization and uh, and all of that garbins. Um, we are coming towards Christmas, mm. and if you live, in, you know, it may not be your faith necessarily, um, but if you live in Europe or the US, it is very much forced upon you, and it is going to be a time when a lot of people will sort of spend time with their families. With that in mind, it can be quite a stressful time for people. Do you think it is more stressful to be, or, or more rewarding? on the flip side to be the host or the guest oh good question you know I think Christmas is a time of sort of real seesawing um, and I think there's probably stress and joy on in, in both roles and I think maybe it would be a bit easier for all of us if we weren't so rigid about the roles if we were sort of a bit more relaxed about how it all went. And I speak for myself more than anyone else because I, I, I had a really difficult Christmas last year with things not going to my plan. And, and I just know that if I'd just been way more chilled out about it, let people help, not felt I had to, you know, sort out everything, and it would have been a much nicer time. And so I think part of... I mean, there's something about Christmas that makes us all think this, this year's going to be perfect or that it has to be, like, the most lovely, harmonious gathering. And I think it's... If we rather think of it as a time when there'll be some great moments, it will be easier to sort of go with flow. It doesn't have to be an ideal. It just... Yeah, it just, it's just a really nice opportunity to get together. And when you get together, you know, there's... There's perhaps inevitably tensions um, with family. I mean, that's also what I write about, that, it, you know, in, in the family, that there are these very special dynamics which you don't have anywhere else. Mm. And I think if we just acknowledge that, maybe we would liberate ourselves a little bit and therefore be a tiny bit more relaxed than we might otherwise. But I, I, it's funny how I still look, look forward to Christmas, even though it might not have gone exactly how I wanted. It's also a chance to try again, which I think is really nice. So Priya, Be My Guest is available now at all good bookshops and indeed online. And where can we find you if we want to know more about what you're up to? And you do some other work with an organisation which you founded called Authors for Peace. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's um, a platform that I co-founded about 10 years ago. And it's just a kind of space where I had the possibility to collaborate with other writers and with institutions on issues that were important in the moment, um, from supporting writers who were um, persecuted to raising awareness on themes like mass surveillance. And so you can find out more about that and about me and what I'm up to on my website, priyabasil.com. Priya, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Standard issue for all women.